Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Trevor Rappa. Trevor, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on, Corey. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Bet. So before we dive in today, let's uh, just go ahead and give the listener an idea of who you are, what your background is, and what you're doing today. So I'm a physical therapist. I'm one of the co-founders of Resilient Performance Physical Therapy here in, I'm actually out of Chatham, New Jersey office, but we have locations in Manhattan as well. Background-wise, grew up playing sports, played football all throughout college, and then went to physical therapy school at Columbia, where I met my business partners, Greg Spatz and Doug Achesian. And then we started our practice back in 2015. So we're a little over eight years in and, you know, we're kind of growing all the time, opening up new locations. We have students. Uh, yeah, it's been a fun career so far. And how many locations do you have? So we have kind of a main one in both New York and New Jersey. Okay. So we have two kind of main ones. And then we have a satellite office at a baseball facility in Wharton, New Jersey, where, where Greg works because he works with a ton of pitchers. Oh, okay. And then we have another satellite in Connecticut. And then we have another satellite in out of another gym in Manhattan in, the, in Tribeca. And then we're opening up another one in Rye, New York. It's going to be another kind of baseball performance center. And then hopefully we're going to have another spot in Jersey in a town about 30 minutes away from here in the not too distant future that's going to be kind of catering to more of a wrestling population, which would be fun. Ooh, that's awesome. Yeah. That is a population that needs you probably. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, wrestlers are just, it's a great community. They're such great people. So it would be fun to kind of get involved and, and help them out a little bit. Yeah. I, I have a soft spot in my heart for wrestlers because, well, I'm from Iowa, number one. Yeah. I, although, although I will say I'm like the only sub 510 Iowan that's never wrestled. <laughs> people look at me like, okay, you, you're, you got some muscle mass. Yeah, you're five foot yeah, eight. Exactly. Oh, you must have been a wrestler. And you're from Iowa. Like, yeah. I've never wrestled a single minute in my That's funny. Yeah, I, uh, I was kind of coerced into wrestling in high school from my, my football coach. I, I was glad I did it. I, it wasn't my favorite yeah, thing, sure. but looking back on it, I've learned so much. And yeah. I wish I would have had a different kind of exposure Overall to it kind of initially because I do oh. think it's, yeah, it's such an awesome sport. And, and the, the the coach who were kind of work with this at this facility wrestled uh, in the Big Ten. He's just an awesome dude. I've taken some of his like adult classes and man, that's just, he's a great coach. And I think so many kids get exposed to wrestling wrestling should kind of beat you up and kick your ass and be super hard and all that kind of stuff versus there's this awesome technical component yeah. to wrestling that just gets over you got to be meaner tougher to pin the kid that's kind of how i think a lot of people are exposed to wrestling at a younger age versus the technical yeah. model of it which is really cool which is beneficial for a lot of different things and unfortunately there's just so many things that go, can and do go wrong and yeah so that's awesome uh, congrats on yeah. that so basically you're Thank taking you. over like New York and Jersey is what I, that's what I, yeah, do. we want to open up as many like locations as we can. I can keep the, our, the quality of our, of our services yeah. as, as high as possible to impact as many people as we can. So we have two, so there's th th three of us that own the business. We have three full-time employees here in Jersey. We got two people in New York as well. And hopefully we're bringing on another one to two people in the near future. So we want to grow. We don't want to necessarily become so big where yeah. we, it's just too much to manage and we can't treat because that's kind of one of the For beauty sure. of, of what we do is like the three of us like genuinely enjoy treating and working with our clients. So yeah. we are a part of the actual service that we provide as well, which is fun. We don't really want to lose that aspect. For sure, 100%. Of it. 
now remind me, are you a fellow are you a fellow D three former D three athlete? Oh yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I so I played at Amherst College. Okay. Yep. I played at Amherst College. We were eight no two times in my four years there, which is cool. So we didn't get to be able to play for the D three playoffs for whatever reason. So like we just played our conference and that was it. So oh. my sophomore and senior year we went undefeated, which was cool. So I ended my college career twenty seven and five in four years, which is cool compared to like our high school team was like decent, but we weren't didn't have a record like yeah. that so yeah like it was always been a sweet to go undefeated and be a good team but then to not have to or to not get to play some of the powerhouses in in the midwest d3 football that would have been cool to to go and play so wait, so, so was we, that because we would end eight no and that was it so why couldn't you play in the playoffs so the it uh, honestly like i don't know the exact reason for it i think part of it is because it's playoffs versus a tournament so like our at Emerson College, while I was there, our women's national or sorry, our women's basketball team won a national championship. Our women's ice hockey team won a national championship. Boys basketball team won a national championship the year after I graduated. We had like really good D three sports, but it was something to the effect of the the conference viewed the playoffs for football differently than the tournament for hockey and basketball and soccer and things like that. So we had teams that made the final four and all their sports stuff, but then we would just play our eight games and that was it. Oh, so, yeah, that's cool. It was cool. Like in my college career, like on a win, like yeah. that was pretty sweet. But then yeah, it's, it would have been interesting to see how we have done the playoffs. I don't think we would have won the natty or anything like that, but it would have been cool to just go and keep it going. Yeah. And, and well, see what happened. It, it would have been feasible for our teams to meet. You know, you totally. could have come out to, yeah, uh, totally. to central or we could have come out there and, yeah, exactly. You played though, right? I didn't. I was on the sideline. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I got some <laughs> some playing time throughout my career, which was which was nice. But I mean, the reality of those years was you go up against Whitewater or Mountain Union, and your season was basically done. Oh, dude, yeah. I, I mean, and now North Central and stuff. Yeah. Those schools are so dominant. Yeah, I, I was kind of that. I'm, I'm like, I think we could have probably won a game in the playoffs, but then once you get to the quarters, the semis, yeah. I'm like, yeah, dude, you're, you're playing kids that are like pretty much Big Ten. Kids. Yeah, you're, you're just rolling people. Exactly. Crazy. Yeah, you're playing St. John's and you're playing Whitewater or, or Mountain Union. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. oh man, good time. D3, love it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, you've got a physical therapist. And before I forget to mention, or I want to mention, you're a writer too. So, like, you've got some articles out. You recently released an article on Sportsmith on today's topic, which is awesome. And then how you and I got to know each other is you are currently in the midst of writing a book for human kinetics on the return to play process. So I don't know, you, you can maybe say a little more on that if you wanted to, but that is something that you also do in addition yeah. to, you know, work. Yeah. So like, like all of like the, the clinical stuff, we all have had our passions and what we're interested in. And like with my football background, I worked as a strength coach, like throughout college at the gym I trained at back home in Illinois. And then. I interned at uh, Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning before my senior year of college. One of my best friends and teammates, actually, his uncle runs one of Boyle's locations, which was a great c- connection. So I've always just been interested in like performance and strength and conditioning, but I wanted to go to the, the physical therapy route since I was young. But with the idea that I wanted to work with athletes and, and I always enjoyed like the field and court sport athletes, I, I always was fascinated by change of direction and agility and sprinting and max velocity and all that kind of stuff because... I've always just been interested in like why athletes move the way they do, which kind of clinically have led me down this like rabbit hole of return to sport stuff. And I almost 90% of my caseload is all like ACL return to sport kids, which is great. So tinkering and experimenting and learning and trying to find out like what are the best ways I can impact my athletes, help them get back on the field, like 
A, safely, and B, to actually hopefully be effective when they get in the field. Because I think everyone knows somebody that like tore their ACL and it got cleared to play again. So like they were like a shell of themselves or it took them two seasons to feel normal again. I don't really know. I was like, that doesn't seem right. I don't really know why that's happening. What are some things we can yeah. do to help them actually like, get back in the field and be themselves or be better than they were before? So that's kind of what led me to all the different stuff, creating our return to sport course that, that we have. And then you and I connecting and then writing the return to playbook for you guys is just trying to understand like why I could see what they do. How can we help people? Because injuries happen in sports. I think that's talk about injury prevention. It's like I tell my clients, it's like, well, I don't want my kid to get injured. I'm like, well, then don't have him play a sport. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. That's just the truth. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you do. There's always going to be an injury risk that is, happens when you strap on a helmet and tie your cleats. Like it's just, it's a part of every sport that's out there. But once an athlete does get injured, how can we help them get back on the field safely and actually be effective again? So that's kind of the whole premise of the return to the, the playbook that we're doing with, with human kinetics. So hopefully it's going to come out pretty well. Well, so uh, we're talking beforehand. It, it's it is it's got a great start. So we're a ways out Appreciate still. Oh, yep, yep. It, we're we're getting there. It is coming. And this was actually a book when I got the HK job. This is one of the first books. I'm like I I want to make this happen because that's awesome. As you've highlighted, what we've seen is sort of a blending of sports performance slash strength and conditioning and physical therapy and yeah, both sides realizing they need each other. And now we've got totally. like the blended practitioner, such as yourself, who mm-hmm. you're a physical therapist, but you know, you're a performance coach. Like you, right. you have deep knowledge of strength and conditioning. You understand training, programming. You understand speed, acceleration, change of direction, power, like all these things. I think when we mm-hmm. were coming up, I mean, physical therapist they just didn't really, but then strength and conditioning didn't understand rehab at all. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, and that was there was just this big space in the exactly. middle that like no one was kind of in between. Yes, and uh, in one of your chapters, you talk about this bridge gap, fill the gap. Who's yep. the gap? And yeah. we need we fill the gap. And so, but yep. I've had so many people like early on when I got the job, this was the number one requested book. Was like, awesome. do you guys have a rehab book? Do you have a return to playbook? You guys need a return to playbook. And I'm like, I know. I yeah, absolutely. And so, sure. But you guys, like you, Doug, Greg, you highlighted really why you guys are great to write the book because you are yeah, thank you. that blend. So today, though, we are going to dive into return from a rehab from injury in a change of direction and agility type uh, case or those types of scenarios. And yeah what are the common do you want to say like maladaptive compensations that you yeah, might see yeah, through no, this process because a- ad, uh, compensation is not always a bad thing just we see these adaptations in sport all the time or the fact that if you can compensate to a degree it makes you more adaptable in a healthy mm-hmm. scenario yeah there yep. are compensations we don't want to necessarily see particularly in a rehab scenario. So yeah. we are going to focus on change of direction and agility. So I guess the good place I feel like to start would be what are the pillars we want to see? So when somebody is in general changing direction and we're talking about this actual physical act of I'm yeah. going to start one way and I have to move the other way. Yeah. Right now, I guess we probably don't want to worry so much about what the scenario is. 
But yeah. what are some of the things that you want to see? And then we can dive into some of the compensations that you've seen as a therapist. Yeah. So anytime somebody changes direction, whether it is like in a, a closed or an open activity, we'll just kind of say the general, like you said, just somebody moving from right to left, left to right, whatever it kind of is. There's always like three things that I kind of think about that an athlete needs to be able to do to conform whatever pattern or change of direction skill that they're, they're trying to do. So they have to be able to produce enough force to alter the, the, their momentum. They have to be able to produce enough force in the right amount of time because there's time constraints with any sort of change of direction. And they have to be able to produce it at the right angle to move in the direction that they want to go. So those are the kind of three things that all change of directions kind of have in common. Can you produce enough force? Can you produce it in the correct amount of time or, or in the available time for, for the change of direction? And can you apply it at the right angle? So Anytime that there is a change of direction, we're altering our momentum, there is breaking phase and there's a repulsive phase coming in and out of the cut. So during that breaking phase, we want to see some amortization, right? We want to see some flexion occur at the ankle, knee, and hip as they're going into that breaking phase. Then we want to see that extension moment at the ankle, knee, and hip come out as they are propelling themselves, pulsing themselves in the new direction. So yeah, I would say in a very simple way, like those are the main things that all change of directions kind of have in common, producing enough force in enough time at the right direction. And then there's this combination of breaking and proposing that occur in that final step to help push somebody in the new direction. And like all of that stuff is really just, it's just based in biomechanical principles and based on Newton's laws, the law of action reaction for me to go to my left, I have to push off. Like my right leg has the best angle of force to push my whole center of mass to the left. And I think that's kind of a, um, a misconception or never a misconception, but I think it's something people don't necessarily realize all the time. It can be really simple if we break it down that way. If I'm shuffling to my right to go back to my left, my right leg should push me there. Yeah. If I'm shuffling to my left to go back to my right, my left leg should push me there. If I have my feet underneath my hips to move forward, I should reposition a foot behind me, push myself forward. If I'm moving forward to, to stop myself, I should put a foot in front of my center of mass. Yep. So these kind of repositioning steps athletes have to be able to reposition their feet to find the best angle of force application. So the compensations kind of occur with all of these different components. Is there some sort of compensatory strategy in their breaking strategy and their propulsive strategy and their force production and the time constraints related around it and the angle of force production that they're, they're trying to achieve. So we're trying to produce as much force in a short amount of time at the correct angle relative to our center of mass to go wherever we need to go. Right. So within these kind of principles, it's how those things occur, right? That we're yep. really, so yes, like they have to occur. And so like you kind of mentioned, it almost get oversimplified or it seems simple. Okay, this happens, mm -hmm. but how those breaking, how the breaking occurs, how the propulsion occurs, that's really what matters, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like, it, like when I'm watching somebody do whatever cut it is, change of direction it is, during that breaking moment, I want to see that flexion occur at their ankle, knee, and hip. When somebody has quad inhibition or a weak quad or, or poor eccentric force capabilities in their quad, they will tend to keep that knee stiffer, right? So they don't have this smooth flexion moment. It might be really stiff and kind of rigid. And we see often like a, a trunk lean where they kind of hinge forward, where they're using this hip dominant strategy to stop their center of mass from moving one way to the other, rather than distributing the stress along their ankle, knee, and hip. So the angles I'm always looking for are like a, like at that max amortization moment where there's the most flexion kind of in the system. 
I want to see a relatively parallel shin and torso. That tells me that they're using this kind of balanced fluid strategy where they're using their ankle, knee, and hip together rather than relying on one joint or one muscle group to kind of handle like most of the force. So you can see people during, a, I think, just to give context to it, like the, the Sportsman article you referenced is just a, it's a 180 degree change of direction with a lateral change of direction. So what that means is they're not like rotating or spinning. When we think of the five, like a 510 five or a 505, that is a, a 180 degree turn typically, right? I'm facing one way, I'm running forward. I'm going to have to, coming out of the cut, I have to be facing the opposite way. So it's 180 degree rotational cut. 180 degree lateral cut would be like, I'm facing forward still, but I'm just moving backwards in the opposite direction. So I'm shuffling to my right and I'm still kind of in that relatively lateral shuffle or a lateral run moving back to my left. So at that moment that like, let's go right ACL coming off of my right leg, going back to my left. If I'm shuffling and I stick my right foot down for the penultimate step and my knee doesn't really flex and my trunk kind of hinges forward and we have this more vertical shin and kind of relatively torso position that's parallel with the ground, I'm using the tip dominant strategy where I'm using this rigid, stiff strategy in my knee to kind of limit how much force my quad has to absorb. That kind of goes along with that position is I, most of the time people kind of close off their feet. So if I'm shuffling to my right, my left foot is my backside foot. My right side is my front side. My right foot kind of externally rotates and, and pulls with my heel. So I'm pulling with my heel as I'm shuffling to my right. To go back to my left, my, my right foot doesn't stay towed out on the right. It doesn't yeah. stay externally rotated. I close off my foot. My foot kind of becomes parallel, sorry, perpendicular yep. to whatever my new direction. When there is a compensatory strategy with that, we may see that foot kind of stay more towed out and the knee locked to kind of create that really rigid post for the entire leg. So they, again, have are just finding some way to limit the eccentric force demands on their quad. So there's, there's a bunch of different compensations that can be kind of caused from the same thing. If you have a weak quad, it's going to be really hard to change direction really quickly like you need to in any sort of open or closed environment. And the compensations are kind of numerous. They can kind of figure out any way to do it. So those are all like, the involved limb yeah. compensations. Another one is they'll just take this huge breaking step on their penultimate step. So for that example, if I'm shuffling to my right, my final step or my ultimate step would be my right foot. My penultimate step is my left foot. So if I use that left foot to take a huge breaking step and really slow my momentum down, I'm doing that because I'm trying to decrease the breaking moment on my right leg. So what is what does a breaking the, step look like? Like how do you, how would a coach identify that? Yeah. So. When we're shuffling, so let's go like the model moving to a shuffle. So if I'm shuffling to my right, my left leg is my backside leg, my right leg is my front side leg. I'm kind of close off on my left leg. I'm, I'm extra rotating on my right, that directional stuff, and I'm pulling, right? Push with my left, pull with my right at, as I'm shuffling. To then go into that change of direction moment where I'm trying to cut back to my left, we should typically see that right foot redirect, right? It, I, I, I call it a redirectional step, but that right foot closes off and then the left foot reverses and takes the directional step. Typically what happens, and like I said, because of that, the angle of force application, like my right leg is best positioned to redirect my center of mass back to my left. So you should, and again, it's not always, but what you would typically see is the left leg after it pushes kind of almost stays off of the ground as the right foot redirects and they push off of the right foot to push themselves back to left. Once their left foot leaves the ground and their center of mass is still going to the right foot will redirect 
hit the ground and push their center of mass to the left before the left foot touches the ground. What we see with somebody who's compensating for that right limb is once that left foot hits the ground and they know they got to cut back to their left is they'll almost like re-put that left foot in the ground kind of underneath their hips, underneath their center of mass to try to apply a horizontal braking force for their center of mass that way. So it's like that, that, that sequence of left, right, left, right, left, right. When we're shuffling, when we're running, whatever, they're going like left, right, left, left, right. So they kind of try to get in another step with that left leg to slow their momentum down prior to the ultimate step on the right leg, just as a way to decrease the force demands on that yeah. right leg, because it's weaker, they're not confident, whatever. Yeah. That typically kind of coincides with a really big trunk lean back to the direction they want to go. And one of the things when it comes to like change of direction and agility stuff is it's like the goal in change of direction is to change direction as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. The goal with agility is to be prepared for the next movement that I'm going to need to do. So I always want people to feel balanced. I'm leaning my trunk excessively one way or the other, I'm going to throw myself off balance. So my first movement is going to be have to regain balance before I have to do whatever I have to do. Mm -hmm. So if I'm shuffling to my right and I'm leaning my trunk to the left because I know I have to get back to my left, right? I'm already off balance. So if that's a strategy I'm using when I'm like guarding somebody in basketball or whatever, if I'm leaning to my left, a a savvy offensive player is going to just go the opposite way. Right. Right. So if I'm off balance, I'm going to make myself slower. It may like slower in the long run. It may make that like single movement faster, right? I will change direction faster if I'm leaning my center of mass or leaning my trunk back the way I want to go, but it's not preparing me for what could happen, for what else kind of could happen. So we always, I always want my athletes to be able to stay balanced when they're doing all of these different drills. So yeah, so like to answer your question, what that breaking step would look like with that left leg is sometimes Athletes will do like this hockey stop where they slam both feet on the ground at the same time. And there's this like full stop of their momentum before they actually start to go back the opposite way. Or we see that left, right, left, right shuffle pattern. And then before the right foot hits the ground again, they kind of stick the left foot in the ground to slow themselves down where their foot's not outside of the center of mass. It's underneath their center of mass where they're trying to dig it in just to apply some sort of horizontal force to slow their momentum. Yeah, trying to assist that right leg basically exactly yeah. exactly and and like, like another thing you'll see with like acceleration stuff just from a two-point parallel athletic stance like a, a linebacker a defender of basketball to go forward from that quickly we have to take a step backwards we have to reposition our foot we have to take what lee taft calls a, a plyo step we don't always just have to go straight forward we have to go kind of forward at a 45 or or sorry forward to my left and forward to my right and a 45 to go forward to my right at a 45 my right leg should push me to my sorry to go forward to my left at a 45 my right leg should push me there and vice versa going to my right we see an athlete with a right acl as they'll take that repositioning step apply step but it's with their left leg to still go to their left because they just don't trust that right leg so i've seen that like a number of times from kids who have gathered like oh yeah i felt really good i felt really quick but they're just like they're, we're decreasing the time constraint of the activity of, of whatever we're doing, but I can tell they're not confident and, and they're not like fully ready yet because they're still just using this left leg for everything rather than relying on the right leg. And all of the things that I do, I, I have them do it on both sides so I can see what their normal is. So if they're changing direction super smooth off of that, that left leg for this shuffle kind of cut we're talking about, but then they can't do it to the right. I'm like, okay, well then we're still missing something. We're missing a piece, whether it's their quad strength, whether it's their yeah. kind of rate of force development qualities or whatever. It yeah, is. for sure. So a lot of this is very qualitative. This is for sure. 
listening to you talk, it sounds like a lot of coaches eye is going on here. Like I've got a, I've got to be able to assess what I'm looking at. So my, I guess my question, and you know, I'm thinking ahead a little bit of someone who's in what I used to be in as a team scenario mm-hmm. and maybe you know, more of a healthy population, but we see the things that, that you've discussed in a healthy population. People will do that hockey totally. stop. People will do yep. like kind of that slide stop or like kind of use that inside leg to, to assist. And as a coach, I was always like, I mean, yes, they changed direction but is that the best way to do it and you also highlighted a really good aspect i want to mention this of difference here between change of direction speed activities where the next move and the type movement needed to execute is you can prepare yourself you Mm -hmm. can um kinematically you can shift your body weight you can alter center of mass and base of support to make that cut or that change of direction more advantageous because you know exactly what you need to do yeah, yeah, you can't exactly. do that if you don't know what's coming next. So exactly, that's an yep, important yep. aspect, and we might talk about that a little bit later. But how are you evaluating this when you're watching your athletes? Are you is this all via video? Are you videoing them, and then you're kind of like so looking at it later? Yeah, like, or initially it was all video. Yeah, like because these are very seeing, quick like, moments that we're talking totally. About. And you, I mean, just like we have to train our coaching eye right like we we need reps of all that kind of stuff and lee taff has just been an absolutely huge mentor for me with all this stuff and he's really the, the guy who opened my eyes to like all of the stuff related to the agility and change of direction strategies and how athletes kind of move and he talked about how you just like i was just watching videos just like all the time just like filming stuff watching videos so i bought a little 20 dollar tripod with a bluetooth clicker and i would film every rep of all the different things that we did with these kids that i would just sit for hours and have i think i have twelve thousand, like <laughs> probably four to eight second clips on my phone of just all these different drills where i'm filming rep to, to see if these strategies i'm seeing are consistent across yeah this athlete across different athletes all that kind of stuff so yeah i filmed like everything and i would understand the context of what i'm looking at but then it, it's gotten to the point where i have seen it so many times and i know what i should see with something that i can notice it i can notice an error kind of right away so like that example of the repositioning step backwards with the left foot even though it should be a right leg kind of move if i'm doing a a a reactive ball drop where i'm standing five feet five yards from my athlete and i'm kind of like launching like dropping a ball to the front of them to the left or to the right i know what i should see with that same thing if i throw a ball behind them i know i should see hip turn probably with this foot or whatever so things become more predictable i think it's in the franz bosch's agility book he says there's a there's a million ways to waltz or dance, but there's one way to sprint. As the speed of an activity increases, it should become more predictable. So once we kind of understand that, like the patterns that we see are predictable patterns. The strategies athletes utilize are kind of predictable strategies. But then when we see an error from that, well, why did that error occur? And that's so, yeah, I mean, it's like tons of video, tons of reps of watching stuff. And I would say I'm, I've gotten much better at being able to do whatever kind of agility drill and understand like what are some of the things that i kind of should see with this okay then my next question is how do you make the athlete aware of this like i don't always want to make the athletes kind of two aspects to this because the athlete knows you're filming right so they i'm guessing in a lot of cases want to see it and then yeah the other aspect is you've identified a potential negative compensation 
you do have to make them aware of it, that they're doing it, but it has to be done, I would imagine, in a pretty delicate way as to not yeah, them inside I, their own honestly, head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I think there is, you can do a lot more damage than good sometimes by showing athletes everything and breaking down like every little thing, right? Like some athletes want to know why, some athletes don't want to know why. I honestly, like I'll, I'll oftentimes kind of see is, is the strategy that I saw just was that a one rep thing that was weird for whatever reason. And then is there something, is, is there just a really generic external action cue I can give them that's going to change their strategy? Just like, dude, be quicker, get, give me more pop, get out of that cut faster, whatever it is, but just trying to give them just alter the strategy through a simple cue. Or yeah. is it like, no, there's something deeper. That's like, they have a force deficit. No, they have a, they have a lack of confidence. No, oh, oh, their knee still hurts when they do this movement. I just, I, they didn't tell me and I didn't know that, right? I really don't ever tell athletes, like, though, I get the, the question all the time. Well, what should I do? Let's try to shuffle. Should, <laughs> do you want me to, I'm like, I don't care. Just do it. Your job is to do what I'm like, you're going to go chase this ball. You're going to move to your left and I'm going to throw this ball somewhere. You got to go get it as fast as you can. Yeah. I just keep it really open and really generic and so they can kind of problem solve and figure it out. I honestly almost never tell an athlete like what to do i'll be like bend your knees more try to stay a little bit deeper but especially with, with with the context that i work with athletes in because they're coming off of an injury like usually there is some sort of like physical capacity deficit that's going on i do work with some of my like healthy athletes with calm have been told by a coach that they shouldn't take a step backward they've been told by a coach that they shouldn't do this and i'm like i don't want you to think i want you to be fast like, like your goal is to be as fast as possible so I will give them cues that can hopefully help make them be faster, but I want to give them just exposure and reps to whatever activity we're doing so they can practice. Like a common one, like with basketball kids, every coach has told them to get low and keep their chest up. So a kid will get low just by dropping their head. So they're like hip hinged or they're hip hinged and then they want their chest up. So then their back is all arched and you're like on your toes, but you're also trying to throw your, throw your, your body backwards and your spine's all like overextended and then your abdominals, right? There's just like, so many so many components of that can impact yeah. it's like dude i don't care about that where do you feel fast where do you feel comfortable get in that position just move from there honestly a lot of that stuff can clean up what an athlete right i should say not necessarily clean up but it can impact the strategy that they use just because their body's in a better position they can get into a better shape for the change of direction for the acceleration step for whatever it is just by helping them not think and your goal is to be fast and go accomplish this task. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Can you accomplish the task? Well, if you did it, then you probably didn't do that of a job whenever it was. Mm -hmm. But if you got beat pretty badly, well then yeah, maybe there is something that we need to do that's going to some sort of strategy alteration process, whether it's cueing, whether it's working on your physical capacities that, that underpin that movement skill that you're struggling with. Yeah. And, and that's, there is no perfect way. It's, it is a very subjective thing, but I think the subjectivity of it is super important and it's hard to express what that subjectivity is, but everyone knows a good athlete when you see one. Like when you, right, like you watch somebody juke somebody out, you're like, wow, that was awesome. We don't necessarily know why it was awesome or what made that juke awesome or how they performed that juke, but like, there was something about that that was awesome. Yeah. We've seen a lockdown defender of basketball. It's like, how did he do that? What made him so good at that? Well, the positions he got into because of where he started at helped facilitate a really good strategy yeah. going into it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. You're also adding in like all the perceptual cognitive elements to that. You don't necessarily can't observe those necessarily, all of them in any way, just by looking. Yeah. So the basketball player might have had a knowledge of the scenario that allowed totally. 
know, him or her to be in that position or to know what's coming next kind of thing. So yeah. I do want to get into more of like sport representative scenarios mm-hmm. of, okay, maybe we've got an athlete there rehabbing the ACL. We've started with activities like you mentioned earlier, where it's fairly predictable. They know what the movement's going to be. They know what the type of cut's going to be maybe expose them to different directions. So maybe they were doing more of that 180 turn type cutting. Maybe they were doing 45 degree runs and then maybe we're combining all of them and they all look very, what we would expect or their compensations maybe have gone away. And now that we're moving more towards representative activities where decisions have to be made, they don't know what movement's coming next. They don't have to, they don't know what maybe type of cut they're going to do. Yeah. And then you see the compensation start to pop up again. Totally. What's, yeah, absolutely. What's the next step there? I guess, why is that occurring? I guess it would be number one. Like, why, what do you understand or know about why those that might occur? And then how would you deal with it? Because that also, yeah. we see that too in a, in a non-injured population. of Oh, these closed reps or these closed drills, whatever, looked super quote-unquote clean. And then mm-hmm. it all went out the window when we went yeah. to a more open activity. And uh, I think coaches go, well, we better hammer the closed stuff more. Yeah. So how do you deal with those? Scenarios? Yeah, I, it's a cool question because. <laughs> Thanks, Corey. It's, it's, it's like, it, you know, no, I like it because it's like when if we're if somebody can execute things like in that kind of closed manner, we're kind of assuming they have the physical capacities to be able to do all the different change directions that we're kind of like globally referring to, right? They can do a 45 degree cut. They can do a speed cut, a decelerative cut. They can do rotational cuts, whatever, right? But if once the kind of complexity goes up of a drill, if they start to struggle, especially, and again, my context in my head is always like my return to sport kids. If they're struggling with that, like maybe they're just not confident and they haven't, they feel good when they know like they're going to sprint for five yards and then turn around. But if they're having to chase me and we're doing like a linear kind of mirror drill, they all of a sudden slow their velocity down a ton because they're just a little bit hesitant and they right, don't know what they're doing. Sometimes it's just, they're just not good at it for a little bit and they need practice. It can really be that simple sometimes. But I do think there is, it's how do we kind of impact how do we impact the complexity and grade the complexity and grade the chaos of a drill or an activity before they kind of get back to their sport? So for me, Lee is my guy, the reactive tier system, two, one, two, 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 three. And it kind of goes along with Warren Young's agility classification system too, which is like temporal and spatial uncertainty, right? So tier one is they know where, but they don't know when, right? So that's like, for myself, I use like racquetballs all the time. So it's like, you're standing five yards in front of me. I'm going to drop a ball and you're going to accelerate. You don't know when I'm going to drop the ball, but you know where. Tier two is they don't know where and they don't know when. So if, so for that drill, you're standing in front of me, but now I can drop it in front of you. I can throw it behind you. I can throw it to your left. I can throw it to your right. So I'm just gradually increasing the spatial uncertainty, mm-hmm. the temporal uncertainty of what they do. Tier three is they don't know where, they don't know when, and there's like multiple changes of direction. So for me, one of my big ones I do is I call like, three active box drill where I use like our five by five box on the turf. And if I point to the front corner, you got to get there. If I point to the back corner, you got to get there. And I just am kind of constantly changing where I'm pointing. And then sometimes I'll add in like a ball throw. So I'm going to point to the front corner. So I want to see them 
reposition that right foot and accelerate to their front left. And then I'm going to point backwards. I should see a hip turn and then I'm going to throw a ball and I want to see them change direction there. So if I see somebody that like all of a sudden changes how they move as I move through that reactive tier system, I may just need to have them get more exposure to some tier one or some tier two drills before I increase the complexity of it. Um, so they may need more exposure, like all of a sudden quickly repositioning their, their right foot to cut off of that right leg. They just need, may need more exposure to that because there is like an anxiety component yeah, that kind of comes sure. when you 100%. make things reactive, right? Yeah. Some people do great with it. Some people don't. It's funny because you know, I see so many of these like return to sport kids and like there's kids that are just great athletes. And once they have the physical capacities, they are unbelievable. And I'm like, I don't really have to spend a lot of time doing anything. Like I could jump to like tier three reactive games where we're, you know, playing tag and chase and yeah. powerball and all sorts of like fun stuff like that, where it's basically like just one-on-one type games. But there's other kids that, yeah, they're just not confident. And like they need more time gradually getting exposed to whatever activity that they're you know kind of limited with so it's like practice is such a huge part of it there is this motor learning component to it that is not just instantly <laughs> boom i'm great at stuff like keep like we all need practice with me so yeah that's a, it's like the yeah that's yeah. not like a sexy answer right but it's yeah man like you know, i do this specific job. No, i just give kids time like kid like athletes need time to adapt they need time to get better at stuff and that's a huge part of it it really is and it's just an unfortunate aspect, I think, of strength and conditioning because we want to see things get better. Like, totally. Oh, if something looks bad or if something doesn't look good, what can we do right now? Yeah. Because there's pressure from other athletes watching. There's pressure from coaches or parents yeah. watching. Like, why aren't you intervening here? Like, why does this still look yeah. not great or whatever it may be based on, you know, just a, the naked eye or maybe they have limited knowledge of what they're really seeing but we also know motor learning tells us that people learn at different rates not everyone starts in the same spot number one with their skill with things that's just really when you apply it to other things it's common knowledge like some totally with lifting people come in with different skill levels and yeah but we also know that this the learning process isn't linear it doesn't happen in these really defined stages also know, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit in the rehab scenario that the things that we do that will make something look better, quote unquote, immediately are not great for long-term development. Yeah. I, I can say something instantly to make something look better, yeah. but will that then carry over in the future to right. make that athlete more adaptable when it counts in a more representative or game like scenario and often the case that's not good. And actually it's funny. And the more I like learned about skill acquisition, motor learning and things like that, there's a lot of parallels to, I guess, learning in general, just the the acquisition and learning of information. Uh, It's pretty clear that struggle is necessary and making mistakes is necessary when you're learning something. Mm -hmm. Gotta be at the edge of your abilities And there's a lot of element of that with learning movement skills. Now, some people I think have taken that to be, you know, I'm sure you've heard the adage of, well, you have to know arithmetic before calculus. So I need to see all these things before I ever even get to the more complex stuff, which I think in a rehab scenario, there may be a little bit more of that. We've kind of discussed those things today. 
but yeah, this I need the things to look better now may not always be serving yeah. athletes the best way. Yeah, like you're what you're saying kind of brings up like implicit and explicit learning to me. Yeah, I can explicitly tell an athlete how to do this one drill better, but that's not giving them like autonomy and giving them the ability to to kind of know like, oh, being free with my movement is going to be better for me long term. So if I try to give those external action cues that just basically honestly get them out of their own heads. Like I don't care what you do with your body, let your body figure it out. Adapt on the fly sort of a thing. Let be a have movement variability. Don't try to be so rigid and constrained. Be dynamic and be athletic. So I think when we good implicit learning happens when we're not over coaching, when we're not over cueing, when we're not telling exactly it's exactly how to accomplish this one drill. It's like, no, just figure it out. Let yourself move. I don't like you're a good enough athlete and you need exposure. Like you have to figure out like what works. Sometimes they do need some cueing for that stuff. Try to stay a little bit lower. Try to bend your knees a little bit more. Try to be a little bit quicker, things like that. But I think when we're telling somebody to like, hey, lean your trunk this way to make this cut faster, right? That's not necessarily a strategy that is going to be adaptive from a long-term standpoint because some people take stuff too far, right? Oh, I should be leaning my trunk kind of all the time. It makes me faster as well. Not all the time. One situation it did. Yeah, not 24-7. And and so I think I've seen those examples of, of things where coaches have drilled into kids i if if you just took somebody who had never been coached and you just put them in reactive situations and let them figure it out like we probably wouldn't need to intervene all that much and give them a ton of cues maybe a little bit kind of here and there but that's not the world we live in we live in a world where kids are told from a young age how to do a b c d and e so that's not always the best thing these kids are kind of almost programmed in a robotic sense yeah, of how they should be doing these different movement patterns and skills. exactly it's limiting creativity so our job is to like get them to be creative again our job is to kind of take off those restraints like un- right unleash them to a certain degree to allow them to become dynamic and just have problems to solve like sport is full of movement problems that require movement solutions we're trying to expose athletes to different movement problems throughout the return of sport continuum they're having to solve. So then hopefully when they get back, they're comfortable solving some problems. And like the moving problems in an, you know, an 11-11 football game or soccer game are so different than the moving problems in a one-on-one, you know, power ball or goalie tag or whatever kind of <laughs> drill I do with my kids, right? But there's still elements of like closing space, creating space, tracking, right? Pattern recognition, like all of these things that make really good athletes elite without us necessarily being able to kind of quantify them. Those elements are in all of the different drills that we do. They're just in different quantities and they're in different, yeah, yeah. Like quantities is probably the best word I can think of right now. Like they're just, it's just different, like it's different magnitudes of it, but it's still there. So we're just exposing them. We're we're trying to expose people to like the stresses that they're going to be able to have to handle in their sport, whether it's the velocity, right? Force stress, whether it's like some of the processing mental stress that athletes are under, we're just trying to give them exposure to to these different things and and with the return to sports stuff it's like when a closed drill athletes can plan how they move they're only thinking about how they move they're not thinking about something external or thinking about something external i can't think about what my body's doing but i'm gonna see what you're comfortable self-selecting so those hip hingey type change of directions occur because now they're not thinking about what they're doing but i know that maybe they're still not fully confident hitting those positions that I need them to hit just because 
yeah, the velocity is a little bit different. The complexity is a little bit increased. It's just overall harder activity. So they're self-selecting a strategy that they're more comfortable and they're more confident in. So I want to see somebody execute the positions, the shapes, the angles, all that stuff in my closed drills, in my tier one, my tier two, my tier three, my reactive stuff, the games, all of it. We, we want to see people go through that process. And like you said, you're totally spot on. I think with healthy athletes, sometimes things almost become too regimented. I want to do this and this. I personally do that with my return to sport kids because I'm grading stresses. I'm grading yeah. forces the entire time. And I'm I, I, like a kid who is four months out of his ACL probably isn't ready for me to try to juke him or him to, to try to juke yeah. me. But after doing closed drills, after doing really simple agility drills and progressing to more complex drills, by the time he's at seven, eight, nine months, he probably is ready for those drills versus... Yeah, somebody who doesn't have an injury, you can put them in a, a hard activity that's challenging their skills from kind of day one because they should hopefully have some of the physical capacities that they need to be successful. Yeah, I mean, we see, we, we do probably see that in a healthy population where, yes, they might have some physical capacities that limit their available movement options, but you really see it in a rehab scenario. Totally. You have to get their physical capacities up to where they have access to a certain option and otherwise yeah. they just literally don't have access to it so so last question i want to ask you here is did a really good job of explaining sport has movement problems that need abundant solutions mm -hmm. how do you marry that up with the fact that or the something you said earlier about kind of like predictable patterns that you'll see because that's where my mind kind of struggles to mm -hmm. to just balance those things. Because it's like, okay, yeah. if someone's a very, um, they're like, man, you put them in any scenario, they yeah. just get it. They're, done. they're a playmaker. Yeah, I would I would assume that then you would also see lots of different movement bio like patterns bio biomechanically. So like, yeah. how do you kind of marry that up with? movement predictability and like you kind of mentioned earlier that like the speed the speed of an activity increases yeah the movement patterns observed actually become a little more so just kind of finish our discussion just, just that's a cool that. yeah again Corey, cool question i like that a lot because that's something that, that i think about too right it's well how do things become predictable but there's so much chaos and there's so much variability in sport and i think like what you're talking about with like the athlete who is super adaptable and can be successful in like any situation. Sometimes there's just like a, there's the sport skill aspect of it that we just cannot measure, or at least I don't think we can measure right now where they can like Ed Reed is somebody who pops in my head with that. Like Ed Reed was a ball hawk and he could know the quarterback's going to throw a, the post art on the backside just from the first instance of the snap based upon like, pattern recognition of the play so i think it's not a, like the movement skills are massive Ed, ed reed was an incredible mover like his hip turn and his closing speed and all that stuff is just like probably top five top ten all time for the free safety position but there's like the people that are really successful also have this inherent sport skill aspect that i personally don't like fully understand and and don't know how to kind of quantify or or fully explain that there's like the technical tactical element of the sport itself that yeah. athletes can just use their stuff better than others you know what i mean 
some athletes are really great in the weight room, but they don't have the sport skill, right? Like we've all seen those athletes where he's weak, he's pretty slow, but dude, that you get him on the field and he's just juking the shit out of everybody and he's so fast and he's so dynamic. Like, there's just like, that happening. That's just that was the bane of my existence as an athlete. What's happening? What? <laughs> and then with the, the speed and things becoming predictable, one of the examples that I'll give people is it's, so if I want to move to my left five yards and, and there's no time constraints, you can give me all the time in the world. I could just sidestep to my left really slow. I could spin in circles moving to my left really slow. I could lay down and log roll to my left really slow. But if I want to move five yards really fast, I pretty much can shuffle or lateral run. Those are my only two options. So as the time constraints become more important and more relevant and shorter, our body only has certain ways to generate tons of force in really limited amount of times and at really specific angles. And it's through repositioning steps. It's through keeping my center of mass at a certain height where I can apply horizontal and vertical forces in an instant to move myself in this needed direction. And a lot of that is like the, like one of the things that I kind of didn't mention before. So it's like, can't produce no force, can't produce no force fast enough, can produce them at the right angle. The right angle thing is like some sort of wide lateral foot plant. So moving my feet around the outside of my center of mass. And to do that, like my foot is typically closed or sorry, my foot is typically perpendicular to whatever new direction that I'm going to go. So those are the things that I'm looking for when we're performing these like higher complexity higher velocity movements and changes of direction is like those things occur all the time i want to make sure somebody at that max amortization moment of whatever movement their their foot is perpendicular to the direction they're trying to go or close to it there's that relatively parallel shin and trunk so i know they're loaded at their ankle knee and hip they're controlling the breaking movement or sorry, the, the breaking moment um and they're not excessively leaning their trunk one way or the other and on our twitter i post a bunch of little clips of stuff and one of the ones that i'm thinking of is it was like the vikings eagles game from earlier this season it was justin jefferson running i think he's running like a post corner or something like that and it's him at the top of his route and he looks like he's running straight and then the next frame his right foot is probably abducted 35 40 degrees maybe even maybe 45 degrees outside of his hip and his shoulders are still level and his pelvis is still level, parallel to the floor. He's not leaning his trunk to the left to sell his route. He's yeah. totally balanced. His foot's closed off. You can see knee flexion. Like you can see all the things that I'm talking about because yeah. I'm not, it's not like, oh, I think this would be faster. Like, well, what do fast athletes do? That's the stuff. Like, that's what we see fast athletes execute all the time. But yeah, it's, it is kind of almost doesn't make sense. Well, how can things be so variable and so complex? But, so predictable yeah. like, because there's still so many things that impact that movement strategy being self-selected at that specific point in time. And there's, if, if something was different a second before, like maybe they would have chosen just a little bit different strategy. Like maybe they would have performed that step back instead of rotating, closing off that right hip. Maybe they would have had more of a kind of a lunge stop where their toes are still pointing downhill to stop themselves. Like athletes execute a bunch of skills and there's just these little kind of adjustments for them that kind of make it all look so variable and so complex but it was really like acceleration max velocity shuffling lateral run backpedaling vertical jumping so those are really like the only ways athletes move really fast vertically horizontally linearly are through those patterns and then to transition between all those patterns there's just really only a handful of different cuts and changes of direction that athletes can execute but to go from 
I go from a shuffle to moving backwards. I could hip turn. I could perform a lateral stop and then backpedal. I could, I could stop myself and then completely turn around. There's just, there's always different ways that athletes can, can do things. And those get selected based upon the environment that they're sure. in and what their task is at, at one time. So there's so much, there's so many dynamics at play at one time that impact what we actually see, which is why, yeah, in my world where I'm doing a one-on-one thing or I'm doing just some reactive ball agility stuff, like it's reactive for the person doing it, but it's pretty predictable for me because I'm the one in control versus when I'm watching sport. Yeah. What if he didn't see that linebacker coming over the top and that's why he didn't put his left foot on the ground and cut back on it or yeah maybe he did see it and that's why he cut back on it but yeah. still to perform that cut back back to his right he has to stick his left foot out outside of the center of mass find a wide lateral foot plant his foot's going to be relatively perpendicular there's still like these qualities and commonalities that underpin all of different change direction and or change direction movements whether closed or open sure well if if people want to learn more and continue to dive into this i mean obviously like books coming so there's that and then I mean, depending on when you're listening to this if you're it might be yes. out already you never know yeah that's true right? go to that place called amazon and figure find it <laughs> uh but you guys you also have online courses right yes so if you go to edu.resilientperformance.com we have our two online courses which is our resilient movement foundations course which is kind of how we approach like the technical aspects of more weight room specific things what do we think a good squat hinge yeah. split squat bench press like what are the, the positions that we want all of our people to kind of be in because we think that's what kind of keeps them honestly helps them a perform but also keeps them healthy and then we have our return to sport course acceleration and agility where i talk really a lot about the uh, stuff that we discussed today and do a lot of different movement breakdowns and talk about we didn't talk about today necessarily but the the what are the biomechanical principles and the laws of physics? How do those kind of dictate all the different things that we see? And that was one of the things that made a huge difference for me as I went on just such a rabbit hole reading biomechanics textbooks and finding stuff that could give me the reason why we're seeing what we see sometimes. So it's like it comes down to managing momentum, right? Like impulse momentum relationship. How does that impact what we see? How does that impact the strategies athletes use? How can we use that? during the return to sport progression to help gradually expose athletes to greater levels of stress to ho- hopefully make them safe on the field and more effective on the field once they get back. So yeah, edu.resilientperformance.com has all of our courses and some of the different programs that we've done as well. Awesome. And then we're on Twitter and Instagram, Resilient PPT. Yes. Yep. I'll link to the courses, link to all of the social medias in the show notes. So definitely go check that out. And uh, Trevor, man, thank you so much for your time today. This is awesome, Corey. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again. And I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.